0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now.
1: Scott Johnston is the co author of Training for the New Alpinism. He recently left his perch at Uphill Athlete alongside most of the other coaches and is continuing their work as some of the most cutting edge trainers for all mountain athletes at Evoke Endurance.
2: I think that having a different view, as you probably know, people get siloed into areas of where they just can't think outside the box sometimes, and that's certainly, in certainly in my career as a coach and as an author, has I think been one of the things I've been successful at, which is out, you know outside the box thinking, bringing some new ideas to to different sports.
1: All right, so we're here with Scott Johnston, who. Many of our listeners will know as a co-author of some pretty important training manuals that have come out, some books, Training for the Uphill Athlete and uh, Training for the New Alpinism, which you were co-authored with Steve House, who uh, I'm sure most of our our listeners will know. And you've just trained a bunch of people, like some big names in the climbing world, such as Killian Jornet, Adrian Ballinger, Steve House, Alex Honnold, uh, David Gottler, and you come to this conversation with like a vast expertise in an area that Chris and I are kind of notoriously, <laughs> um, terrible at. Um, so hopefully we're not going to embarrass ourselves too much as we talk about this, this world of training for alpinism and, and kind of endurance base mountain sports. But, um, why don't you just give us a, you know, like a, a description of your background as a coach and how you've come to hold the expertise that you have.
3: Yeah. I feel very run out right now, just to put it into that context. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I will do my
2: best, uh, to not fall with this run out. Um, so thanks to both of you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to get to chat with you. Um, my coaching career did not start with these mountain sports. Um, I have a background myself as a climber. I started. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. I started climbing as a kid. Um, it was just a kind of a rebellious thing to do in the early '70s, which was when I was a teenager, and um, kept climbing. in Ended up climbing a lot, uh, Canada, all over the world, actually, Himalayas, Karakoram. Not anything really that noteworthy, but I also had a career in traditional sports, um, mainly swimming when I was a kid, and um, I ended up swimming, being part of an Olympic development program where I lived and trained in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center for a while, and so I picked up some training ideas early on as a, as a, you know, as a teenager started to understand that there was, um, these sort of intellectual underpinnings of training. It wasn't just going out and working hard. And, um, I mean, that's certainly part of it, but there was something to it. There was, uh, methodologies that were used to produce certain results. And I got really curious about that. Um, I, Ended up, you know, competing in other sports as well, and was able to use some of that training knowledge to help coach myself. And then I was sort of accidentally thrust into a position of being asked to coach a team of uh, junior cross-country skiers. And I'd, excuse me, I'd had a a rather uh, short and um, not very impressive career as a cross-country skier. I did ski on the World Cup for a little while, and, but I, I wasn't particularly good at it. So I had, I had a very short career, but that gave me some exposure to cross-country skiing. I, I did it for about 10 years. And I was asked by the local team to, hey, would you help coach these kids? And I was very eager to help and said, you bet I would. And then I suddenly woke up and realized, oh my God, I don't know anything about coaching. And now I'm responsible. I had 120 kids in this program, and I've got to figure out, you know, what's best at, the, at every age from from six years old through high school. And so I did a, a kind of a deep immersion in training theory and principles. And there's not much written in English. Um, I did manage to get a hold of a Norwegian coaching manual and devoured that. About it was about coaching cross country skiing. And while I was, uh, coaching these cross country skier kids, I did have some quite good success. And, um, in 2014, five of my skiers were on the Olympic team. And during that time I had started climbing a lot with Steve house. We became good friends. And Steve was kind of drifting around, trying to figure out training for himself. And he said, "Well, you know something about training? Why don't you help me?" So we put together a program for him to use um, that turned out to be very successful. You know, and I would advise him on you know, approaches that I s- expected would work really well, based on you know not only my own experience as a uh, climber, or alpinist, but also what I had been learning about coaching. Um, you know, like the science of of coaching and the science of training, and as we as we saw those um, you know, results kept kind of poured in. He would go off on these climbing trips, and we'd see great results. And then, of course, as you probably know, Steve had a, a near fatal accident in two thousand ten that pretty much ended his professional climbing career. During the recovery from that, he wrote the memoir that some of you might know, Beyond the Mountain. And while he was on the book tour. With that book, uh, he was getting asked a lot, uh, well, how did you train to do all that stuff? And I was actually in Norway at the, uh, that this winter of 2010 and 11, and um, I was coaching on the World Cup for skiing. And Steve and I were having a Skype conversation one night, and he just said, hey, I really think we should write down what we did for training. I said, I don't think anybody's going to care. I just, you know, you could probably, at that time, you could have counted the number of people, alpinists who trained for climbing on one hand and had a couple of fingers left over. Uh, But he eventually twisted my arm, talked me into it, and we wrote the first book, Training for the New Alpinism. And we honestly, we, we debated whether we would sell 250 or 500 copies. Of that book, we thought oh, no one's going to really care. We'll write this book, and we'll go back to the rest of our lives. And I think we're we're pushing two hundred thousand copies now on that of that book that have been sold. I'm I'm proud of the work we did. I think it uh, I think it did help bring an understanding to the climbing world where training has not been uh, much talked about. And in fact, I think certainly when I was growing up, my idols were people like Dougal Haston, who they bragged about, you know, how much they could drink and then go climbing the next day. They didn't think of themselves as athletes. And I think what Steve and I were able to do with that book was convince Climbers that you know, if someone is trying to achieve their best, or if they've plateaued, they're not seeing the kinds of gains that you know they maybe saw earlier or would like to see in their climbing performance. Then maybe they should take an approach more like an athlete, a conventional athlete. Uh,
3: you know, you got into the history stuff. You mentioned Dougal Haston, so right away my ears perked up, and and uh, I smiled because you're right. There was you know that that was this era, and it's it's sort of revered, you know, at least in alpinism, this idea that these tough people would just go be tough and their toughness would then result in them climbing certain things. And that, you know, certainly was the case. How, how have you sort of pushed against that a little bit as you've, as you've promoted more training, Um, you know, just kind of like maybe talk to the people who just assume that, well, I'm just not naturally gifted or I'm not you know, I just wasn't born that way, the way, a, a you know, a Dougal Haston popped out and, you know, probably was skiing at two and and climbing the hardest routes at, at 12, you know. So what what's your sort of pitch to the folks that, not that I don't want to train and I don't want to be better. I just don't think it's for me.
1: Or an, another way to put that, I guess, is also the Herman Bull mentality of you just put rocks in your sack and grab icicles in your hand and go on a run yeah. and that's all you need.
3: Didn't Messner like run around with bare feet in the snow? Wasn't that part of one of his things too? Like, there's all these legendary, like <laughs> sure. weird things. None of it was did. true. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah.
2: And I think that certainly we, we there's the there are ex- extra- examples and extraordinary examples of people doing amazing things w- without any obvious training. However, I would say that So there's, maybe we should clear up one thing first, and that is the difference between exercise and training. And so exercise is what most of us, most people do when they think of training. They go out and they exercise. And so, and and if you exercise a lot, I mean, if you go climbing, if you can climb five or six days a week, you're going to get really good at climbing, probably. Um, Just like even if you didn't have a training plan and you were able to go out and run five days a week, you'd probably get pretty darn fit. Most people don't have that luxury of, you know, climbing five or six days a week. At, At elite levels of athletics, people don't exercise, they train. And what training is, is a structured progressive overload program that takes you from your current level of fitness to a new level of fitness that's sort of somewhat predictable um, sometime out in the future in preparation for an event of some sort now that event could be a whole climbing season or it could be you know a running race or you know whatever it is but but training has this structure about it and a progressivity whereas exercise is often quite random. So let's say, you know, somebody says, oh, this ice climb is in today. We should run over there and do it, even though we may not be in shape for it. You know it's a long approach and it's harder than we're accustomed to climbing. But we're tough. We're doogle We're like Dougal Haston. We will get up that thing, and then there, then you're exhausted for a week afterwards. But that's not training. That's just exercise. Whereas a training approach would be, you know, if I were coaching those ice climbers, I would say, hey, why don't you do a climb that's closer to the road and a bit easier today, and we'll we'll build toward that route that this this dream route of yours, this goal that you, that you would like to, to achieve, but you're not really ready for it yet. You could do it, but you, would you do it in good form? Could you do it safely? Or are you just going to hope that everything goes well and you, you're tough and you manage to get up it? And so I think that's the understanding the difference between random exercise and structured training is fundamental to understanding where I'm coming from, where these books come from. When Steve and I actually, when we first hit the road with our book tour with training for the new alpinism, the biggest pushback we got almost every stop, there were climbers and quite good climbers. You know, Steve was really at the, you know near the top of his game at that time. I mean, he was still a very big name in the sport, so people kind of came out just to see him, but we got a lot of folks saying, well, you're telling me that I need to do this or I won't be able to um, perform, and no, I'm not telling you that, but I am telling you that if you're looking for improvement that has been elusive up to this point, that it might very well be beneficial to try a completely different approach, and and think of yourself like it. How, do, how would an athlete approach this? Um, I don't claim that that this these methods that Steve and I have been proposing have resulted in let's say a, you know a dramatic improvement in the most elite climbers in the world although I, I will talk about that in a second but where we've really seen this payoff is for the amateur climber who gets out a couple weekends a month and you know maybe can get to the climbing gym a few days that's really the the contingent of the climbing population that I feel that has seen the biggest gains. Folks who they didn't have a clue how to train and they don't have the opportunity to just go exercise a lot. Um, and I, we we deal with that. You We've know, dealt with literally thousands of those people over the past seven years. And you you know just universally, I have to say that you know the level of those climbers has improved a great deal.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You put it that way because you, you look at the scope of the climbing world, and on on one level, you could kind of be pessimistic about it because there's fewer, or at least seemingly fewer, people who are pushing the limits at the same level that you know some climbers in the '70s maybe did, like uh, you know Messner or you know Kurt Kurtika, and so forth. You know, there's this kind of critique of alpinism that you know it hasn't really progressed much from from that. Scale, just in spite of the advances in science and methodology toward training that we've had, um, and and certainly you you and Steve can be credited for for much of that. You're talking about raising the levels of the kind of mass g- generic masses of people, which is objectively a, an amazing thing, a great thing, giving people more opportunities to exercise and and be fit and and have. A structure that allows them to engage with this but if you come from the top down and from an elite level there you know people have been kind of doing the same stuff in the mountains for a long time now so what are your thoughts on that kind of um that difference Steve
2: and I and a number of uh, I mean Will Gadd was involved in this and Mark Twite you know 20 some years ago um kicked this the same conversation had an almost identical conversation um for several weeks Barry Blanchard was involved in it so like yeah why has why has alpinism sort of stagnated and honestly at that time none of us really could come up with a great answer to it i think it's a you know they are just certainly, Steve pushed the boundaries um, and was able to achieve some uh, um, you know, stellar results. I would say, you know, the the, Nanga, you know, the RuPaul face and Nanga Parbat with Vince was an amazing achievement. Steve and I were talking about this a few months ago when he and um, Scott Bacchies and Mark Twight climbed the Slovak Direct on the south face of Denali in was that two thousand two thousand one I can't remember no two thousand I think you know they did it in fifty hours and it was you know that was faster by several days than the next fastest ascent that that climb had ever had I think it had only been climbed once or twice. And I think, as you guys are probably even more familiar with this than I am, this past spring, three parties climbed it in under 20 hours. So, you know, the time has dropped dramatically. So, yes, it's still the same climb, although I I have to say the pictures I saw from um, when Rob Smith did it with his uh, two partners, it looked like it was in harder, even harder conditions than when Steve and Scott and... um, Mark did it, but anyway, the it's interesting. It's not. It's the same climb, but it's being done a lot faster. So maybe we are at a consolidation stage, where with with alpinism, where these guys that did that climb, oh, they could now they could have the confidence to know we can climb this massive and very very difficult thing in under less than a day. So will they now decide to take that? to the, the great ranges, you know, to the Karakoram, the Himalaya, and, and take the, what they learned there and move into this other arena with it. I don't, I don't know. That's certainly up to them. But that would be how I would see the sport progressing. It's thinking about something like running, for instance. You know, first you had to have somebody break the four-minute mile and now they got high school kids breaking four minute miles, you know, hundreds of people have broken a four minute mile and now we even have, you know, someone who can run a marathon uh, at just a little a, a bit over a four minute mile pace. So it, it, it took that. You know, obviously, I think Steve was broke new ground when he and when he and Scott and and Mark did that, and now we have this sort of. Cons- I feel like maybe we're in a consolidation phase. Is people have to get used to this idea of oh, I can run a four minute mile, or oh, I can climb this massive route in twenty hours. That might take you know a generation. That's what it's taken in running for people. You know, to come to grips with that level of speed and then be able to push the envelope out to like in running the marathon as an example
3: it's interesting because i andrew just said that sort of as a statement of fact and i was like really are we are we stagnated is it or is it just like you know the 70 the guys doing the roots in the 70s had better pr you know and they and those things fell into mythological status and you know, and there are no more 8,000-meter peaks to climb without oxygen and, you know, all these sorts of things. But, you know, I just was also thinking of, of uh, you know, Colin Haley just soloed the damn Cerro Torre in winter. Like, yeah. that is a progression of sorts. Like, yeah. that was unthinkable 20 years ago when those guys did the Slovak, you know, and set the bar. So, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I yeah. just sort of and, push back against this idea that it's just been like, dumb ascent since the 70s
1: or whatever yeah and i i I agree with that and also the the other point that i would add to undermine my own question is um it's so difficult to actually evaluate progression in alpinism because the rating and the just the conditions are so dependent it's just different from day to day and so um there's it's not like um it's not as simple as, like, you know, we have 15A as the limit in sport climbing and who's going to do a 515B sort of thing. And so alpinism is just a different approach in terms yeah, of evaluating that.
2: much more subjective. I mean, you know, one of the appeals of traditional sports is they are so measurable. You know, with a stopwatch, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, when I, you know, have been coaching traditional sports, I actually find it a bit of a relief. It's a lot easier in some ways than coaching some of these mountain sports where uh, there is so much more, there's more subjectivity, conditions change, make it more difficult. I mean, you know, if you're a swimmer, a pool's always 50 meters long, track's always 400 meters around. And uh, that makes, you know, it takes a lot of the variables out. We can't compare, let's say, the, the 1975 British South Face of Everest expedition with anything being done today because the equipment has changed so dramatically but we can compare you know let's say Roger Bannister's mile to somebody else's mile time because it's still a 400 meter track granted the tracks are faster but but anyway I think you get my drift there that it's just it is um, so much more subjective which is I think part of what appeals. To the type, you know, there's some people who want that regimentation, they want that, you know, uh, they want to be able to compare themselves to Roger Bannister. But in climbing, we don't have that. And I think for a lot of us, I know as a kid growing up in Colorado, where I had been involved in this highly structured sport of swimming when I looked at the the, the my contemporaries or the, the let's say not contemporary they were a, l- a little bit older than me but the Leighton cores and the folks like that that were still actively climbing in the seventies and they were complete rebels and that appealed to me a lot coming from a highly structured sport like swimming to go into a sport like climbing where there were no rules um, you know it just you kind of made it up as you went along and and i think that while that has changed to some extent climbing's um, much more regimented now than it was then it still appeals to people who are want to be outside that bound the boundaries of that constraint that you find in most traditional sports
3: did you ever get any pushback from sort of the deep community because i feel like you know alpinism has has been known for its elitism i mean Mark Twight, at least in one phase of his life, was uh you know notoriously famous for for promoting that, and you know he's yeah. he's sweetened and softened a great deal but he's old um now. It, yeah and he and he was part of you know and he's part of this push to get this information out here so but yeah, did you ever get sort of like why are you why are you inviting in the masses kind of pushback or why are you revealing this this thing you know if people don't if people don't get it already, they're never going to understand kind of kind of whiplash
2: no we got pushback but the pushback we got from higher level climbers and we did get a fair bit was this notion of hey i'm already really good who are you to tell me i could be better if i train the way you're suggesting that was the kind of pushback we got Mm. from them um not so much you're revealing our secrets because honestly I don't think they knew there the secrets. Any. Yeah, <laughs> they they just didn't know what they were. They didn't know how to train. I mean, you, you may remember Mark wrote a, a, a little forward in our book, first book, "Training for the New Alpinism," where he admitted that he thought he knew what he was doing. And you know, he he used to call me and we'd talk training a lot. And I kept telling him, Mark, this is you know what he was suggesting was kind of totally out to lunch. It was a bad idea. And it took him about a year to, to realize what I, that what I was telling him was correct. And you might recall that he has this thing as, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And that's one of his favorite little aphorisms. Um, but he wrote that piece for our book. And in it, he acknowledges that finally my message got through to him. So I just don't think that message was out there for even the high-level climbers that, that they were doing it wrong. They didn't even know, frankly, that there was... Such a thing as this this intellectual framework I was just talking about um, that governs how you how a person trains, how your body responds to training. Um, so, whereas I think to the to the amateur climber, they're always looking for a leg up. You know, they're, they're looking, you know, they don't have the ego involvement. They don't have the, who are you to tell me how to train? So the reception with the amateurs has been, you know, been great. And I think we've, that's where I said earlier, we've seen a a tremendous improvement in the level of the average amateur climber.
1: Here's a, here's a question that, um, touches back on this every person client who, it sounds like you've, you've worked with thousands of them. So just like imagine like your average person, you know, they're like, you know, a washed up has been who's got a dad bot and spends forty hours a week <laughs> podcasting and uh, you know they they have a dream to climb Denali or something like that. Paint a realistic picture of what it takes, you know, juggling, you know, a work work, family, life and all of that. How do you train for something like I want to climb Denali next next spring. Is that a realistic goal, and and what's the reality look like for for being able to achieve that?
2: Well, we've had a tremendously good success on you know all these all these big mountains that we've kind of casually alluded to here, uh, even Everest's one of our clients a 75-year-old retired corporate lawyer trained exclusively on stair machine is the third person now, third oldest person to have climbed Everest. Um, Now he did, you know, he's not an inactive person. He wasn't a couch potato when he came to us. So, you know, we could, we were, it was a realistic goal. But I do, the first thing is to assess that, that realistic goal. You know, if someone, Comes to us and says, Oh, I want to go to Everest this spring, and I've never had crampons on my feet. We're going to tell them, Well, you'll be hard pressed to even find a guide service that will take you probably. So you need to think of this more like a two or three year project. Same thing for, you know, other mountain like Denali, which is physically really demanding because of the, you know, the sort of the workhorse nature of um, getting yourself up it by the standard route. And so that's one of the first things we do when we um, meet with a new client is have kind of a heart-to-heart. We want to find out what's your athletic background or your history uh, as through childhood. Um, What about what have you been doing the last year or two? Um, Because it may not be realistic this year that you— you know, you know, right now you were recording this in the middle of November. And if you came to me and just said, well, I've, you know, put on 50 pounds, I haven't done anything. I, I smoke, uh, haven't trained, haven't you know, been active. Um, and I, But I do want to go to Denali on the f- beginning of June. I would probably say you know, that's a stretch doable. Like, I'm sure we can prepare you for Denali, but it may not, it probably won't happen in six months. Um, you know, I think one of the mis- popular misconceptions that's um, been promulgated by things like YouTube and Instagram and Hollywood is that fitness is something that happens, you know, overnight. You do a workout or two and, you know, the sort of,
3: the, the Rocky story. You need order. a montage. You have a montage. Yeah. It takes just, like 45 seconds. Montage. Yeah, yeah and you're, exactly. You're, you're ready to go. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And I often tell people, we're really good at what we do and our, like our coaching, but we're not magicians. And, you know, the. The physical adaptations that need to occur in order to get you prepared to safely and comfortably climb something like Denali are going to take many months they don 't happen overnight and it 's going to so it 's going we have to think about the overall time scale, which could be many months and maybe a year and if you haven 't climbed anything we 're probably going to recommend you you know go to some get a guide and get some training you know some climbing skill set uh, sessions with him or her. But in terms of the the time required, I like to tell people <clears throat> that if you can't do in a week the amount of physical work that you may need to do in one day on your expedition, you have very little chance of getting up the mountain. So if you're looking at, you know, a 16-hour day maybe on the summit of Denali for some people, well if you haven't hit 16 hours in a week, if you don't even your body doesn't know what it's like to do that much work in a, a somewhat compressed time frame, then your chances of success are much worse. It doesn't mean you can't do it. There are people I'm sure who have climbed even Everest and certainly Denali who had no business in the world getting up those mountains, but they just are mentally really tough. But they're also running a significant safety risk you know, for themselves and for the people around them by not being fit enough to um, get themselves under their own power up and down the mountain. So we would normally say that someone with aspirations to climb a mountain as big as Denali will at some point during their training probably be hitting, you know, in the mid-teens for uh, for a week of training. That won't be consistent. It won't be every week like that. But we would like to see them get there for a few weeks during their training cycle. It would be nice to see them hit that. But it is entirely possible for, as you said, the person with a regular job, the dad bod, the whole nine yards, to do this kind of stuff. But it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy. Did you write fact, all
3: that down, Andrew?
1: I did, and I'm sort of—
3: The pack a day is going to have to go, though. I mean, I don't have to be a coach <laughs> to know that. <laughs>
1: I, I sort of uh, got lost in, in thinking about the the psychopath who just— summits on their sheer will and psychopathy alone. Like the, the guy who's never climbed anything, but you know, has made a billion dollars in Bitcoin and has uh, is, is certain that they're, they've got the right temperament to, to be on the summit of whatever peak it is.
2: <laughs> I've seen that. I mean, not the billion dollars, but I mean, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And, and being successful in one arena can be helpful because certainly a person like that has had the uh the strength of will to succeed you know in in some areas but this may be for many people com- completely out of their wheelhouse this kind of stuff this sort of preparation
1: so um let's just like touch briefly upon your your current uh career trajectory at the moment it sounds like uphill athlete which you were a part of for many years is not part of your day to day at the moment why don't you tell us about your uh your new venture and um, sure. and, and I'll leave it at that yeah
2: yeah so um I left uphill athlete uh, in at uh, beginning of September and seventeen of the nineteen coaches that were at uphill athlete left with me and we've started a new coaching business called evoke Endurance. And um, you know, it's these are all coaches that I have personally trained and mentored some for quite a few years, actually, and many of them are are good friends of mine. But it's really we all share this passion of helping people achieve their goals. That's really the, what what drives us. This isn't a, a get rich. Thing for any of us, where we realize that that's probably we've we've chosen the wrong line of work to do that that sort of thing, but it is um, truly comes from the heart. Uh, I think you know people that have perhaps read what I've written and listened to the podcasts I've done might will understand that you know this has been something that has brought a tremendous amount of meaning to to my life. As you mentioned earlier, I have worked with some elite. Athletes, uh, quite a few, actually. For me, it's fun working with those people because they do have they have the time, and many of them have quite a bit of talent. So it's it makes you feel like you're a really smart and great coach when you help somebody like that achieve something. But one of the things that's been really gratifying for me is helping folks who either don't have that time, don't have that talent. Like you were mentioning, Chris, early on, you know, what about folks who don't feel like they're, you know, athletically gifted? And I can tell you one of them right off the bat is Steve House. Um, You know, I don't think Steve will not take exception to this because we talked about this a lot. He's not a particularly athletically gifted person. I've worked with much more talented athletes, but he had a great deal of perseverance. And I think really that, you know, you have to play the hand you're dealt. Yes, not many of us are going to be dealt the kind of hand that Killian Journay was dealt at birth. So we just have to say, okay, well, that's, I'm, these are the cards I've dealt. I'm going to play them as best I can. So I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to train effectively and maximize my personal genetic potential. Yeah, I'll never climb like Uli Steck or, or, um, or Kylian Journey, but I can still maximize my own potential. And for me, that has been more rewarding than working with the highest level athletes because it actually changes those people's lives because those people, they may never have had any expectations of great performance or even any desire because they just sort of wrote themselves off as mediocre. But I have met, Quite a few of the folks that have been influenced either through working with one of our coaches, reading the books, buying training plans, whatever it is, who have said to me, This absolutely changed my life. You know, I never thought I would be able to stand on the top of a mountain. And when I hear that, one of those comments is better than coaching uh, a, for me a number of professionals who you know while they're great it, it's not changing their life to do what they do whereas somebody who loses a bunch of weight gains the self-esteem of realizing that they can do something that's much bigger than they ever thought that's that's been a, a huge reward for me.
1: Libby Sauter is a pediatric ICU nurse and trad climber. She and Mayan Smith-Gobat set the women's speed record on the nose in 2014 with a time of 4 hours and 43 minutes.
3: I just looked up your EnormaCast appearance because it's been a long time and it, it turns out it was episode 99 in 2016. And yeah, it seems like I have talked to you since then in my brain, but I don't think we have. I don't think we've talked to each other since then. Maybe some correspondence online, that kind of thing is a proxy for actually interacting with people. So um, yeah, it's good good to have you back here on the screen. Um, that one we did in person because those were the good old days. Yeah. But uh, here we are on screen and uh, I was excited to get an email from you.
4: Yeah, you know, Instagram can really be a, a, a suitable proxy for real human interaction. So, mm-hmm. Nice to see that's you. That's
3: well known, yeah.
4: <laughs> Mental health is vastly improved worldwide
3: yeah.
4: <laughs> with, with the advent of TikTok and Instagram.
3: Yeah, but the EnormaCast, I mean, that's like real human co- connection, you know what I'm saying?
4: It's it's actually, it's what brought me back to you. Uh, we were out at uh, CalDome a couple of weekends ago and... Um, after exchanging some pleasantries with the folks on the route next to us, they realized who I was, which doesn't happen very much anymore. But when it does, as in this case, they say that they heard my normal cast with you. So
3: That's awesome. It, it was a good one. Um, I, I remember enjoying it. And um, I think a lot of people were, you know, it's just that it was a nice double story because of your, um, not just your climbing, but also um, your work in the medical field and the travel nursing around the world and helping little kids at all was a really nice package to talk about. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, a lot's happened to you and a lot of changes have come about since 2016, especially in the context of what we were talking about with climbing. I'm mostly talking about your speed ascents and being on El Cap and doing all sorts of crazy things like the, is it the, are we, we're not allowed to say the PDL anymore, are we? Oh. Um, (laughs) Probably not, but anyway, I'll move on, um <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean talking about some of the the risks involved and actually m- making light of them because you have to when if you're gonna play those games, I'd do the same thing with with the old a five you know I've got this long running joke about it, but it was terrifying and dangerous when I did it, so we make light of this stuff, but um, but I think the risks actually are part of the reasons that you moved on from uh that kind of climbing to a certain extent
4: yeah we we certainly did make light of it. And I, I, it's not that I didn't realize that it was risky. It's not that I didn't Mm -hmm. know, you know, plenty of great climbers had fallen speed climbing on the nose, the Huber brothers, Hayden Kennedy, they'd all taken whippers by that point, as is the frustrating part of the human experience is that it's not until you experience things yourself that you seem to actually really get clued into things. And yeah. So after, uh, 2017, when Quinn Brett fell chasing my speed record on the nose, and she broke her back and became paralyzed from that fall. Incredibly, she survived, but, uh, you know, is paralyzed from the waist down to this day. Yeah, it really, it took a lot of the joy out of it. It added a lot of really complicated feelings about it. And then I had one of my closest friends die in a repelling accident a month after Quinn's accident. And boy, those, those two inner circle accidents really just took the wind out of my sails and tried tried going on the trips I had two expeditions lined up for the winter that Quinn was supposed to be on both of them and got partway through one of them got up to about 21,000 feet on something and sat down and got on my Delorme and texted my friend to buy me a ticket home and quit professional climbing went back to grad school here we are
1: one question I have about that Libby is um you know you're Uh, trauma is such an immediate part of your life as a nurse. You know, it's something you interact with every day, I presume, or at least when you're working as a nurse. But the, you know, the immediacy of these people in your inner circle, as you described it just now, hit you in a way that uh, was really resonant. And I'm curious to know, like, what how how you've thought about that disconnect in, in terms of your life just working in the trauma ward versus... Seen these things that you presumably understood in an unlike this intellectual level, but wasn't really, you know, salient until it was present in this like very, emo- you know, like terrible and personal way.
4: Yeah. I think there's, there was a degree of cumulation because, you know, like Chris and I talked about all those years ago, I was on Yosemite search and rescue for years. Like I was a part of climber fatalities. I have, picked up bodies of climbers who have fallen or been hit by rockfall. So I knew, I viscerally knew. Um, and like you say, in, in the type of nursing that I was doing, the pediatric cardiac intensive care, those kids are sick and they die a lot. And so I, I was certainly not um, unexposed to the, the realities of how difficult life can be either on the rock or off the rock for the families that are unfortunate enough to have to go through a pediatric cardiac ICU. But I think you just, you add a bit of age and you add some of that real inner circle loss and the, just the pure accumulation of, of friends that had died, but weren't my best friends to then having two of my closest friends have such terrible accidents to be a nurse or to be a rescue professional like you are intimately involved in some of a family member's worst day and so you certainly hope that you aren't dehumanizing the experience so that you can maintain your compassion but you absolutely have to compartmentalize it yeah in terms of you know yeah we you know on the nursing floors you you joke about having like dark humor and having to make those horrible jokes to to sort of get you through the moment, otherwise you're gonna cry because it's it's so sad to watch a parent grieve their their baby or their child or to walk out with someone whose climbing partner fell and is dead. Those who can compartmentalize the best are the ones that have longevity. And clearly, you know, I, I had a reasonable run, but it took about a decade and then I was I was done with with the the glory, uh, and the risk in, in big wall speed climbing. And, you know, and I've since stepped away from that PEDS cardiac high intensity nursing as well.
3: A 10 year run is a solid run and, yeah. and you did great work during that time, I'm sure. And, um, you know, and I also want to note that in, you know, we should, maybe move on from this a little bit because it wasn't really the scope. We sort of side, we sort of like freaking just came out 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 swinging here. I'm sorry, Libby. But, um, but I mean, I want to also just point out that I, I admire, um, that moment that you took on that expedition to call it. And, uh, you know, from a climbing standpoint, someone not understanding it would maybe say, well, she bailed or she, you know, and it, it was an incredible, to me, it sounds like an incredible moment of courage to say like, no, this is over and I'm done. And, and because there's a lot of pressure just to keep going within climbing. And so I just want to put a mark on that, that I I greatly admire it. And I know, I'm sure how difficult it was and to, uh, to make the decision like that is, is a powerful move.
4: Yeah, certainly you don't feel good leaving your partners hanging when you're bailing on something like that, but I, I, I certainly realize the importance of climbing in my life, but also realize that it's, it's dangerous every day, no matter what you're doing. And so if you're not feeling it that day, it's not the day to be out there.
3: Um, you know, one of the other things that we were talking about, uh, on that interview so long ago or not that long ago, but, um, you know, you were also very much getting into or, or well into endurance running, um, doing really long runs. Did that, did that part of sort of mountain culture continue in your life after, um, sort of pulling away from these big missions in the mountains as far as a climber?
4: Um, I mean, certainly my desire to be a part of big things is still there. I have a, a laundry list of goals and things to do. But part of my like reevaluation after Quinn and Niels was my friend who died in the rappelling accident, was that I I stepped away from big lofty long-term goals. It required a lot of training. And I went to grad school to be a a family nurse practitioner. And so that sort of has been my endurance sport for the last (laughs) three years. And so, I mean, I still climb, I still run. I climbed El Cap for the first time in a long time last month, but I've been training my, my brain to learn this new role more than my body to suffer up mountains.
3: Yeah. And one of the other changes that, uh, you know, if we're, we're going to continue to belabor this particular, uh, you know, track of thought. But, um, you know, is that you also, uh, you know, found a partner and decided to have a family, um, which is also something that, you know, in our lore of climbing can run contrary to, you know, those big lofty goals and, and feeling like, well, I don't have time for a family. I don't. Have energy, or it's going to like curtail the adventures that I want to go on. Is is pretty much the common sort of thread with especially young climbers that are getting after it. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Also, that change, and or was it something that you'd always wanted and had just put off? Or, you know, at what point was it time to try to start having a family for you?
4: Yeah, in in twenty seventeen, Rayda's, Quinn's accident, and Neil's accident. Um, I sort of reconnected with one of my Yosemite search and rescue teammates, and we'd had sort of long-term crushes on each other. And through the bonding over our loss of Niels, who's a mutual friend, we started dating, and it was a very romantic funeral. Um, And... (laughs)
3: and speaking and, of the gallows humor that does, yeah. does sound kind of hot
4: i mean we weren't the only couple to be formed at that funeral so yeah. <laughs>
3: just, it's not an uncommon phenomena in climbing actually
4: yeah uh, but
3: let's not go off on that particular track yet. <laughs> right
4: <laughs> um but yeah so we just we we'd had this longstanding crush and and so we just clicked immediately and very quickly in my mind I knew i was i was 33 at the time. Like I knew I was psyched on him and it just really solidified these like vague inklings that I'd had about children. Um, I'd never been a hundred percent yes or no about having kids, but I I knew that I liked kids. I was a peds nurse. So I liked them. Um, But I was just so, like you said, I was so obsessed with my own athletic endeavors that it, I just couldn't imagine it. But then I sort of, Got that last little puzzle piece of this incredible partner, and it it just all made sense to to go for it. And yeah, we we decided to start a family, but like what we didn't realize was that like how much uh, autonomy you you sometimes don't have with that decision.
1: I, I think the topic of this conversation that we we're we we're interested in having with you is just this idea of balancing these competing dueling worlds in which kind of kids or having a family is seen as antagonistic in some sense to, you know, being this like rad climber, you know, and this is a theme that Chris and I have belabored on this show many times, um, you know, but you know we're fortunate enough to have kids and and have a family, and and you're you're in a different position, and so a lot of the griping that Chris and I do about how much less climbing time we have because our our children are impeding that, you know, taking the taking away our, our time on the rock, so to speak. Um, there's another side to that, which is this incredible, just like just how unlucky we are to like be be dads and, you know, have, have families and so forth. And, and so you, you're coming at this from a very different perspective, but a very important perspective, especially from a a female perspective in which there are limitations and constraints to your biology that men don't even think about most days or certainly experience. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's a helpful way to just kind of frame what we want to talk about, but maybe you could just like, Tell us more about what you mean about you know having having these like you know constraints placed on your decision to start a family that you didn't ask for.
4: Yeah, you're 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 so right that I I can see from from this side of the fence how fortunate you guys are to be where you are and to have that gripe of of your your healthy children uh, impeding on your climbing because yeah we have not been that fortunate. Uh, I was 36 when we started to try and boom, nailed it. First go pregnant, kind of didn't really know what we were doing. Didn't really think it was going to happen that quick. I was, you know, I knew I was a little bit on the, the older side. I was a, a geriatric pregnancy um, That's a
1: real term of art that um, my my wife has has experienced um, yeah, as yeah. well, and yeah, it's, it's an unflattering description of <laughs> yeah. of, of a thirty six year old yeah yeah thirty six <laughs> yeah. year old yeah
4: yeah sometimes you'll see it as advanced maternal age I think cause they're trying to actually okay. get away from that the geriatric term but it is a a good one to sting um, but yeah we we were more just in shock I think my partner is more on the you know, questioning side of, of wanting to be a parent, um, and doing it for me and doing it now for me, um, more than his own psych at the notion. And so we were sort of in this holy shit, it happened first try and we were on a road trip. It was, it was spring. So we were headed down to Red Rocks and had a really nice day simuling epinephrine and sort of had a bunch of talks about what we were going to do, how was this going to transform our lives? And, you know, uh, last name, whose last name would the thing take? And as we were going to bed that night, I started bleeding and cramping in a way that I'd never cramped before. And so it was just this. So I was really nervous, didn't know what to do, didn't have an OB established yet. Managed to get a hold of my gynecologist the next morning and they sent me for labs. Um, and I'd continued to bleed through the night. And it was, it was really evident that I was having a miscarriage after only having the pregnancy for about a week and a half. And it, it was just, it was such a shock to me and, and to my partner endlessly of how hard that was, how sad, even just talking about it now, I can easily start to choke up. But that was for us just the start. Yeah, you can um you know miscarriages to have one is is not considered a risk for more and and fortunately that one it happened, it resolved and we were able to just my body did its thing and healed and moved on and we tried again and the second one again first try boom stuck and now I had this just this incredible switch from the first one. I was in this like, holy shit, what did we just do? To that, like having it and losing it and suddenly being like, holy shit, that biological clock is real. Cause it was just this like visceral loss and then visceral need. And second one, everything seemed to be going great. We visited my partner's family and we were only about 9 weeks along but we told his family cuz i wasn't bleeding everything seemed fine i was like my boobs were sore i was tired like it all seemed great and i was excited to have our first ultrasound and we go in there and he's got the camera up to like take a picture of the screen and nothing's moving and whatever had happened You know, although I was over nine weeks into the pregnancy, the embryo had stopped developing at six. And just like this crazy shock, I didn't know that you could have what is called a a missed abortion or a missed miscarriage where your body doesn't know. And so you keep producing all the same hormones, but you don't find out until that very uncomfortable transvaginal ultrasound that your baby's dead and it's super grim yeah well let yeah <laughs> i was like i keep going because there's more but. Yeah,
3: yeah i know there's more we can keep going because um you know this continued to happen but let's just like take a break there for a second and um you know we were laughing just a minute ago you know it's good podcasting laugh laughing to crying but uh we, you know, geriatric pregnancy, uh, uh, advanced, where it was advanced maternal, advanced maternal age. You know, these are things I think that you expressed to me that, you know, were a little bit of a surprise to you in a sense that, you know, middle to late thirties was probably already getting to that age where these complications became more common. And can we like maybe switch over to talking just a little bit about that as thinking about sort of the movements around, you know, empowering women and women athletes and, you know, women with careers, um, doctors, surgeons, all these sorts of high stress careers where you have to put off having a family, you know, as you were doing all those adventures, what was in your head as far as that? I mean, did you think you had had this time that it wasn't going to be such a big deal? You know, where did your notions of starting a family later in life, um, You know, what were they like when you were in your 20s?
4: Yeah, I think it was common amongst my generation of that perimillennial age that feminism told me that I could have it all. I could have the career, you know, I can can pursue the advanced degrees. I can be the professional rock climber. Um, I have time. Because it's, it's, it's not true that your fertility wanes. Plenty of women have babies after 35. And so it just, it wasn't, it wasn't really on my mind that my time was running out. And, and I, you know, just not even realizing going into it how common miscarriages were for anyone, let alone how the rates tick up. Really, the rates start ticking up from age 30, 32 is your peak fertility as a woman. And then from 35, there's a, there's a increase in the slope and 37 and 40, it just gets steeper and steeper. And that the miscarriage rates increase, the difficulties to just get pregnant increase. And it's, it sort of feels like in my bitterest of moments, I have felt like feminism lied to me that it, it it let me think that there was all this time. It's just not true for everyone.
1: Um, I'm, I'm going to add a, a male perspective to this to just echo something that you said, which I find interesting having gone through this experience a couple times now with my wife. And there is this really fascinating shift in mentality that happens where, as you alluded to, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if we like want to have kids. That seems like a big change. And then... And then it becomes real and all of a sudden that's the most important thing in the world. You know, having miscarriages is like is just it's it's painful in a way that you can't really understand until you've experienced that shift from is this the right thing to do? And then all of a sudden it's like it's taken away from you in a way. And I think that a lot of people don't talk about that and Um, or just really understand, you you can't understand that until, you know, you go through it. And as you just very powerfully expressed uh, Libby, you know, the, the, the the emotional carnage that comes from, from going through that experience. Um, But I'd love to like, have you just put on your clinician hat for a second and, you know, kind of strip away the, you know, potential critiques of feminism and just Whatever else we we might want to talk about, but just describe the. What, what what do you think you know, young women or female climbers who are listening to this? What what should they be thinking about, or what should they know that maybe you didn't know? Just making those decisions in a way that would be more informed than maybe they are now.
4: Yeah, uh, I mean, just in terms of talking about miscarriage and difficulty becoming pregnant, we spend so much of our early lives fearing pregnancy and doing everything we can to to prevent it, that the recognition that it is a finite resource and that it is it is something that not everyone is capable of doing once they decide to do. You know, they say it's somewhere around 15% of recognized pregnancies will end in miscarriage. So that's going to include someone whose period was just late, but that might have been a miscarriage. But that recognition of how as we age, those pregnancy risks go from around 15% up to 40% or more once you get close to that 40 years old. And that, that doesn't bring in, even bring in the factors of the ability to get pregnant and whether or not you can even get to the point of a miscarriage. Um, yeah, your time to pregnancy can also get, get longer as you age as well.
1: And do you have any information just on in terms of how those statistics change in terms of, you know, growing older, you know, like once you're in your thirties and once you're in that geriatric pregnancy, uh, (laughs) unflattering phase of, of your life, what, what is the, do, do you know off the top of your head, like what the the rates and statistics are for success after that?
4: Yeah, like I said, so it's about 15%. That's just like the general average taking in all the healthy young 26-year-olds that are doing this up into the up into the high 40, the 40-ish percent once you get close to 40 years old. The other thing to consider is that your not just your egg count decreases as you age, but also your egg quality. And so that's that's sort of the struggle here is that we we don't have a good marker for measuring like your egg quality how well that egg can once it joins with a sperm divide appropriately.
1: Whereas and at and least is that the reason that like um, egg freezing is a is a viable path for for some people?
4: Um, it, it is a viable path for some people because they can give you uh, additional hormones if your body isn't producing them enough to help eggs mature. And then they can also uh if you go to make embryos with those eggs that you freeze, they can grow them in the lab for a couple of days and check them for chromosome abnormalities and Mm. see if they would likely to if they have the chance of being a healthy pregnancy. Because the number one cause of miscarriage is chromosome abnormalities. But IVF, you know, it's a whole nother topic, but it doesn't have great success rates. It's not a guarantee. It's you know, it's tens of thousands of dollars for, you know, 50 to 60% success in, mm-hmm. in one go.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting. You said something, you know, just kind of off, a uh, sort of comment that, you know, we spend as your twenties or whatever, just, you know, desperately trying not to get pregnant, you know, and, and it, that in my head, that went a bunch of different ways. You know, we talked to, um, uh, Lauren Delaney Miller about her book, you know, the Valley of Giants and how there was this like moment where, you know, women really started to excel in climbing that kind of seemed to at least correlate with, you know, the sexual revolution with birth control um, and sort of removing these pressures from, from women to, to get pregnant or the physical act of getting pregnant, which would take them out of climbing. And of course, you know, talking about that feminism sort of piece you know, that is in some ways frameable as like this big triumph, you know, these, these women who normally would climb a little bit and then have families, Mm -hmm. suddenly they could put that, put that off. And that's sort of what we're talking about. But it's also this culture, you know, we, you you know, finding a partner is, I think, someone who, you know, you're sure you're going to spend a life with and are on board, both people are on board with having kids is a difficult prospect, I think, within climbing. And in a lot of ways, climbing and climbers in general tend to be very allergic to the idea of children. So I think it it would be a tall order for, you know, someone like yourself when you were 27, 26, you know, to think ahead this far and to be like, okay, this could be a possibility for me. You know, it's like I can you imagine? I mean, did you have any sort of conversations like that as a as a, a young climber banging around Yosemite? Kicking ass. I mean, was that something that banging you around? Is about that with your friends? What kind not of verb literary, choice? Not literally, pun, intended? pun uh, intended. Maybe not. It, it is fun. <laughs> no. It
4: is fun to be a twenty-year-old woman in Yosemite Valley. I will tell you that. Um, no, it it wasn't. It wasn't on my mind other than right. not not wanting to get pregnant. And there's just you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier about um, egg quantity and egg quality. And like what I wish I would have known at 27 was um, there's it's it's not a great proxy. It's not all the answers, but there is a simple blood test that you can do that can sort of give you a, a vague idea of where your egg count stands. At least it doesn't let you know about quality. It can give you an idea of like how rapidly you are approaching being out of eggs, which is basically menopause. And it's it's called your you can get the AMH the anti-mullerian hormone and it's it's a blood test that can be done at any point in a woman's cycle and it 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 correlates with the number of eggs that you release every month from your ovaries and so it can be a good indicator of not quite how much time you have but it's 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 the best proxy we have Um, it is affected by being on birth control you can have about a little bit over twenty percent. Lower AMH number if you're taking the pill. So it's, it's something you'd have to talk with your healthcare provider about doing. But if I had known about checking your AMH and if it comes back low, pursuing that freezing so that, you know, you can wait until you have the right partner and you can have your 30 year old eggs and your
1: I assume you follow like climbing culture online and I feel like there's a lot of notable high profile women in the climbing sphere who have uh, transitioned into roles as professional climbing moms. And, you know, that's part of the media that we see. How do you view the conversation that they're starting? Are you following that? What's your take on, on, on that side of climbing right now?
4: Yeah, I mean, I was I was just at a, a fundraiser for um, a Yosemite fundraiser where Emily Harrington was was the guest speaker, who was seven months pregnant, and Timmy O'Neill's wife was doing the interviewing, and she was six months pregnant, and they were talking about climbing and pregnancy and how there's no climbing clothes that fit a pregnant body and and all these things, and it's 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 an equally important and parallel discussion that I think. I want to have of, you know, there's other notable women in the climbing community who have struggled with fertility. Heather Widener, who, who climbed China Doll, the 14A route in, in Colorado. You know, she had a miscarriage and then didn't get her period back and had this four-month period where the doctors didn't know why, and she ended up having to have a surgical abortion to remove retained products from the miscarriage. And so it was this drawn out process. And she's been just so incredibly fortunate to end up with a baby now. She's got almost a one-year-old or Sean Jean Lee's, Mikey Schaefer's partner. She's a orthopedic surgeon. She's free climbed cap and she's 38. So same age as me now. And her AMH numbers are near zero. And so, although they are trying they have failed multiple IVF rounds and she's had a miscarriage. It's as important as people like Emily or Hillary, um, are for women in climbing. I, I, I don't, not that I just want to be the gallows humor and talk about all the sad shit, but man, this is real and it, it really blows.
3: Yeah. I mean, the other question I had when, when you brought this topic up is that, um, you know, if there was some idea that, um, in addition to, you know, putting off pregnancy that the stresses that, uh, athletes put on their bodies, you know, severe endurance type athletes, which you were one of those people, not just running, but also, um, with these all Um, although you guys were going so quickly that it it seemed like you weren't, at, le- at least you weren't like sleep deprived, but, um, but that kind of stress in it, you know, involves, you know, involves cortisol washes and, and adrenaline and, and and just levels of stress that I think you know are are pretty unusual. Um, and I asked you about that, and and I had also kind of as we were talking was googling these kind of things, and it seems like there was a bit of I don't know if you want to even call it research because everything seemed to be inconclusive, and and more study needs. You know, there was all these sorts of words that go with it, but and nothing seemed to be specific to you know late in life stresses because. A lot of the things I read were like, you know, exercising is great for a a pregnant woman, you know, which didn't really nail it because exercise versus, you know, draining your reserves to empty on, on big missions are two different things. But, you know, you sent me some stuff. It talks some about marathoners. Interestingly, it talked about doctors and surgeons. Speaking of your friend. Um, who she has sort of the double whammy it sounds like as as those stresses and maybe sleep deprivation over years being a problem but um, you know what what are your sort of if not just um, conclusions based on your reading but um, you know what are your ideas around that if that seems to be maybe affecting these these uh, pregnancies not just late in life but by these um, extreme athletes
4: yeah I mean I think you 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 said it in the beginning of 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 your last comment there is that more study is needed. Like, Mm -hmm. like so much of women's healthcare, we just don't know a lot of these things. And, and so these small studies that, you know, there was a study in 2021 that showed that higher physical activity levels around the time of a pregnancy implantation led to more risk of uh, miscarriage which is something that resonates with me because my first loss came the day that I did epinephrine and my third loss came the day that I did the West Ridge of Kness. And those were both early around implantation. There's some studies from 2012 that talk about prolonged vigorous activity, which is vigorous can be loosely defined as activity where it's hard to talk. Um, Many hours of that per week can result in um, a higher miscarriage risk and uh, people who do that having a longer time to achieving pregnancy. But we, we just don't have great answers. We don't have large randomized controlled tiles that can really help us be certain about this. What you talk about when you when you Google exercise in pregnancy, you know, the you'll see the The recommendations are 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. It's good for you, but that doesn't really apply to us rock climbers, right? Like especially big wall mountain runners or a trad climber, all day sport climbing. Um, And we don't have the data on how much physical activity is too much. And it's, it's, it's just desperately frustrating and fear inducing for someone who's mental health and happiness and connection to her partner is reliant on those big days in the mountains. And you can tell me as some very helpful person on Facebook did to just knock it off while, while you're giving it a go, it's nine months, it's no big deal, but I'm two months or two years into infertility. And so it would, it would really be great to have better science to help guide how much physical activity is safe, but it's just not out there yet.
1: One thing I'm curious to hear your take on Libby is, um, a lot of, or or I guess a lot of the, um, you know, successful pregnancies that you see in the climbing world, um, from prominent people who have a position to be influential in this way are to kind of, I don't know if boast is the right word, but at least just kind of, you know, shout their praises about when they've returned to, um, their their prior level of success in climbing while being a mom that's great if you can do all of that but it's it also just it renders this conversation difficult in a way in another way that is unintentional which is to go back to what you said about being able to have it all you know like be the person who can have a baby and still climb 13d or whatever it is and that's, that's amazing, of course, if people can do that, but it, it you know, for people in your position, it's got to be painful in a way to see that or to, 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 to have that be the focus of like, what the pregnancy is. And it, it it turns, it turns this process of like raising a child into this, it's almost like secondary to the climbing performance, like the, the climbing culture is like, is so focused on performance. and and success and red points and you know getting records and whatever it is that just being able to have a baby in your arms or to raise a child and to be that that person's parent is is sort of secondary or it's just not really spoken of in a genuine way. So I don't know if that is an unfair take on on the on the social media world of of climbing and pregnancy but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
4: I mean one we often don't know what we don't have or like, we don't know what we're missing out on. So for the women who are psyched to be able to get back to their pre baby levels of sending and that that's their focus, it's how fucking lucky for them, like genuinely to have that be their priority. Whereas I'm still stuck in this hole of, uh, I was just turning down an invite to train for the infinity loop on near next year, because if we're going to be trying to have a baby, I don't want to put that kind of physical stress on my body and like risk another miscarriage. I did just watch that. um, I can't think of what her last name is. That woman, North Face athlete, Caro, they have a North Face did a little video called baby steps. She's got two little ones and it's just about her and her partner figuring it out. And you know in general i just nothing but glad that the outdoor world is making space for these kinds of alternative you know alternative lifestyles to just like the the rich white dude who goes and colonizes mountains around the world and names them after himself but uh i just just ask for my own own spot at the table here so grateful to you guys for for letting us talk about this
3: yeah and one of the things uh you know it's like we joked. I, I don't know if it was on the mic or not, so I don't know if it'll be in here. But about you know how you're joining two guys to talk about this, and you know, but it's a it's it's enlightening, and it's also this idea of um of the idea of of miscarriages, not just I mean being common and being something that you sort of want in the open, and it's it's a. I just see a really difficult kind of relationship there because I mean, even you just talking about it was so difficult, and and I know that it's not easy for anyone because I was privy to to Jen's, um, to Andrew's wife's. You know, we're very close with with their family, our family is, and so we knew about everything that was going on and the difficulties, and you know, it's just like a hard thing to to put in the public space. So, would you do you have any ideas? We're here on this podcast, obviously, but um, you know. Sort of how talking about it affected you, and and you know, did you put out a, a very powerful Instagram about it? You know, did that help you? Did it did it hurt you to relive those things? You know, what was the benefits and the cost, if you will, of trying to sort of normalize the idea that it doesn't always work, and and women need support through these things, and um, and also what's hindering that?
4: Yeah, the. You know, talking about pregnancy loss uh, is is something that I that I want to do. Um, Because when I had my first, I didn't know anybody that had had a miscarriage. I didn't know anyone that had had a stillbirth. I didn't know anyone, despite the fact that I worked on a an ICU with thirty women of childbearing age. I didn't know any of their stories because we typically keep it so guarded. And so, wanting to make it make it more common and more known. Mm -hmm. And, and appreciating the internet, although I can shit talk on Instagram all day, is that it, it did connect me to a bunch of people who were in the periphery of my community and the benefits to going and sharing the parts of my story that I have in helping build the community that climbing is so known for in connecting with other women who have, have also gone through this because it's, it's really common. And in our community where women are older and we wait longer and we have these higher stress lives, it's common. I, I, I have one friend of who started trying after 35 that hasn't had a loss. Every single one of my other female friends in my greater Yosemite community has had a loss of some sort from a early miscarriage up to stillbirths. And they are terrible.
3: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the other thing that you, you had in that post on Instagram was talking about the, um, you know, even the stigma and the problems within the medical community of dealing with this stuff and, you know, problems that you had because of, you know, either anti-abortion sentiment or actual legislation or practices within the medical field. And it seems to me that, that all that stuff, all those things, and, you know, it's it's November 8th, right now today at this moment and uh you know it just seems to add so much more weight and stigma and unnecessary complications to it all that it's it's again part of this idea that that women's health is not valued in any way or is not valued enough in our society um yeah i don't know if you have any more comments on that
4: oh comment i got comments <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my so I had in summary I've had four miscarriages. Two of them were spontaneous, which meant that I just started bleeding. Um and they resolved on their own and two of them uh were missed, which meant I didn't have any bleeding. I just with an ultrasound there was no no viable baby in there anymore. Um and so when that happens, you need to have an abortion. And in the medical world, an abortion and a miscarriage it's the same word, and so that means that miscarriage care falls under the same legislation as abortions. And so, if you you, you probably heard a lot recently with um, through the pandemic and and all the um, Roe v. Wade staff hearing about the pills for abortion and how they can like mail them to you now in some states, it's two different medicines: uh, mefepristone and mifepristone and misoprostol. And that's what you get given if you want to have an elective termination of a pregnancy. The first medicine blocks progesterone to to terminate the pregnancy to sort of stop its progression. And the second one causes contractions so that you can have a period and start bleeding. But because of federal legislation, it's really difficult to get that first pill, the progesterone blocker, because that is the de facto abortion pill. But when you have a missed miscarriage, that's what you need. And I didn't know any of this at the time. And so when I was just given that second pill, the contraction medicine, and it didn't work. And I got given more and it didn't work. And I got given more and it didn't work. And I just spent weeks slowly, like, um, you're bleeding just a little bit, just enough to remind you that you're flushing your baby down the toilet every time you go pee. Um, and with my second one, or the first one, excuse me, I, I ended up uh, with retained products, became infected. I had to have a middle of the night abortion procedure. And these are all things that were potentially preventable. If we didn't have this kind of pre-Roe v. Wade, you know, pre-that, the restrictions on that abortion pill, compromises miscarriage care and because I now had had to have so many surgical abortions for termination of my pregnancies I now have scarring in my uterus and and potentially um, unable to even carry a pregnancy anymore because of it, it it's yeah. it's it's where
1: uh, my heart goes out to you I mean that's like nice. it's yeah
3: well I guess the, the the point of that and you mentioned it you know you said pre roe versus wade but you mean uh, before this became the ballot issue of the day um when, when roe v wade was still codified in in the supreme court these things were still happening in the last 20 30 years and and it's it's all co- it's complicated by the same factors you know it's like for some reason the this idea that this particular act of healthcare has some moral quality to it is, again, part of the issue that we're really discussing here is that there's some moral judgment of of the ability to not carry a child or not want to carry a child. And, and there just shouldn't be because as we're talking about here, you have no choice in this in in terms of your the way your body is reacting to, to wanting to be pregnant. And it's made... It's just like... Oh, like I said, a horrible, strange mixture. It'd be like if open heart surgery was suddenly an immoral act, and so you had to fight to have open heart surgery when you were dying of a heart attack. It's 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 exactly the same thing. It's like you were fighting to not to not have these horrible outcomes, these horrible health, health outcomes, and and there's been this moral judgment on it that's basically you know a roadblock to what you need to have done.
4: Yeah, I I. I... I've had a couple of conversations with uh, people who are anti-abortion. And man, I just I love to say I love babies more than anybody. I spent 16 years as a nurse saving babies. I went to war-torn countries actively at war, Libya, Ukraine, Iraq to save babies. I want to have my own. But the need for America to protect women's health care and to acknowledge that abortion is health care. Is just paramount, and that these moral judgments that you talk about are so misguided, and that this black and white conversation that we have around abortion being good or bad is just bullshit because we know that the majority of women have abortions because of financial reasons or it impeding on their school or professional opportunities. So let's create social programs that diminish those. Hindrances to having a child, and we can decrease abortion without fucking up my uterus at the same time. You know, we can cut down on abortions by helping women without trying to do so and hurting women.
1: I I struggle to even know where to begin with this issue because I'm so, it fires me up on so many levels and it's uh, such a misguided. Discourse that we're having um, and a a dishonest discourse that we're having about it because it's just caricature after caricature about the worst motives. And and, and I don't know if we need to go there (laughs) with this, but I'd like to try to steer this back to the climbing. Kind of what we're dancing around here is that there are these huge climbing goals that we all have. There are, you know, the financial goals that we have just to support our lifestyles. And then there's like these family goals that we have. And those three buckets are kind of the, the things that lead to a meaningful life on some level. And, and so we want to try to be good at all of them, but in, in this climbing space, we're so focused on just one of those things. And it's, it's a badge of honor to sort of not you know, to like be a dirt bag and not like pursue a, a way to make money or to like support yourself. And if you can do that in the service of, you know, being the best climber in the world, then that, that's all worth it. Never mind if you like die, you know, uh, impoverished and, and with nothing left. And what we're talking about here is the tension between these other two buckets, which is wanting to have a family, wanting to have this like meaningful aspect outside of the climbing space. And also pursue these, like, the, you know, these like extreme goals that are celebrated, and you know, get you on covers of magazines and sponsorships and so forth. And you, you've you've lived this um, life, well deserved life, that in which you've been celebrated for your your climbing achievements. And now you're in this other category where you're trying to find or build a family, and um, and and then that's a big goal that you want to pursue. So, ha, has your experience in trying to pursue this family? Do you blame your climbing experiences for that? How do you reconcile those two tensions? Is there regret? Is this something that you, I'm sure, you stew over all of this all the time? But like, I don't know if you want to make it personal or if you want to just speak to people in in an abstract way. But how do you reconcile those two those two buckets?
4: You know, Quinn and Niels uh, in 2017 and, and my friends before them, it, it really did create this inner tension because climbing has been a part of my life since I was very young and it is fundamental to who I am and it has given me my best days and my worst days. And I, at some point settled on the both and mentality that climbing is both the best thing That has ever happened to me. And it is also the worst thing that has ever happened to me. It has taken me all over the world. It has given me all these incredible moments of just like flow and zen and that jubilation of utter exhaustion after a big endeavor. It's given me the love of my life and my partner and my friends and my community and my purpose. But it has also taken all of that. And as as we talked a lot about, the attitude towards children and procreation in the climbing community has endlessly complicated my life in terms of my own delaying of it and in my partner's own fear of it. And I just wish I could go back to 30-year-old me and tell me to go freeze my eggs because it's not cheap, but it is getting cheaper and it, science is getting better. And man, the amount of therapy bills that we have had in the last couple of years and the, the, the strife on our relationship through the miscarriages, I would so happily pay that $10,000, which is an inordinate sum. It's huge, but vans cost $100,000 that kids live in these days. So go get your AMH checked, people with uteruses, and freeze your eggs if it is at all what you think you might want to do
3: yeah do do your own build out and then save that money and and, yeah Yeah. or or instead of the four by four just get the two by (laughs) yeah yeah don't yeah (laughs) you're not going to use the four-wheel drive that much anyway come on (laughs) yeah you're just
4: going to the creek anyways it's fine
3: exactly it's bumpy roads you don't need the four-wheel drive just need clearance (laughs)
4: uh yeah so both and best and worst
0: patreon bonus episode for rope guns only we take you on a journey of sight and sound of pin scars and off of slander and rigid definitions as we tackle the mystery of the Salathay's legendary pitch 19 once heralded as perhaps the crux of the greatest free climb in the world pitch 19 then suddenly disappeared from the record being sucked into the seething void of obscurity That is the Twilight Zone of Revisionist History. Become a Rope Gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and join us on a dangerous and exciting search for Pitch 19. Was it murdered by a German prince? Was it just conveniently shunned like a difficult in-law? Or is Pitch 19 poised for its harrowing revenge? Join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout and these ridiculous
1: promos. Jonathan Segrist, friend of the pod and one of my climbing heroes, was recently camped out in my driveway while working on sending Flex Luther, the first 515 in America, The route was established by Tommy Caldwell, and it lay dormant for nearly 20 years until Maddie Hong did the second ascent. Maddie thought the route was hard, upgrading it to 515B. Jonathan demurred, however, thinking 515A was appropriate. I kind of knew flex wouldn't be hard for Jonathan because, well, nothing really seems to take him very long. He's so freaking talented and good. It just seems to come naturally to him. Of course, he works hard and sacrifices a lot to be where he is but his experience as a climber is in many ways starkly different from us regular schlubs. One of those regular schlubs is my good friend, Wendy Williams. To be clear, there's nothing schlubby about her. She is fit and strong as hell and could easily outdance any 20-year-old. But climbing for Wendy doesn't come easy, and lots of her hardest ascents are the result of years of work, plugging away at the beta, refining, refining, refining. Wendy's been climbing for almost 30 years, and earlier this year, at age 48, she reached a new level and red-pointed her hardest route to date. The route is Magnetar. It's a solid 513D in rifle, and it's a rock climb Wendy's been plugging away at for three years. There are a lot of people out there who scoff at the whole project of project climbing, and write off a sense of this kind as foregone conclusions. The dismissed red point sport climbing is overly determined, as if any sport climber who's stubborn enough could basically send any project so long as they try it enough. To these critics, I can only say, well, let's see you do it then. This kind of hand-waving represents a true failure to imagine the actual living hell of being trapped in project mode for years, and what kind of sacrifices and commitment are required to see your way through this dark tunnel with no light in sight. I'd like to use this opportunity not just to buddy spray about my friend Wendy and give her huge props, but also draw attention to this kind of every-person expression of climbing passion, commitment, and love, that you don't often see represented in normal climbing news. Really good climbers are just too talented to suck at their projects for that long, but I suspect more of us will find inspiration in Wendy's example. So cheers to you, Wendy. You're a huge inspiration to me, and your example shows all of us that it's never too late to climb the hardest route of our lives. If you've got some good buddy spray, just record yourself telling us about one of your friends who's doing great things in climbing. You can email me ideas at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. you've just finished another episode of the Runout podcast i'm andrew Bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com
3: and i'm chris calouse and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris <laughs> At runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die.
1: That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no. no.
0: It's,
3: no, no. it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com.
1: <laughs>
0: No. dot slash run podcast something like that. Give us some money.